What I'm going to speak about, rather than corruption um, and the origins of Kenya's crisis of governance, which is the title that I gave originally, um, and you'd be unsurprised to learn as a historian, I argue the, <laughs> the roots of corruption are deep. Um, but what I'm going to talk about today is something completely different, uh, which is an eloquent corpse. A corpse that speaks to the history of post-colonial Kenya, that speaks to the present political culture, um, and it's the corpse of Deden Kamathi. Deden Kamathi was one of Mau Mau's most prominent leaders, uh, executed in 1957 by the British government, and then his body was put into an unmarked mass grave in the Committee Maximum Security Prison near Nairobi. And what's remarkable about... I'm not going to talk about Kamafi as the person. I'm interested in Kamafi's or a posthumous career, if you like, as a uh, corpse. What's remarkable about his remains is the fact that they weren't in any shape or form an issue of politics or public debate for 30 years after his death. And then in 1990, this became an issue. What had happened to Kamafi? What had happened to his remains? What, how had he been buried? Could his remains be exhumed and reburied in a more fitting manner? It became a matter of great political debate. So, just to quickly fill you in, and as a plug for a book that's on display outside, which you can then buy, my work on Mau Mau, Kamafi was the leader of a peasant rebellion against the British colonial regime through the 50s. It was a rebellion that it's uh, centred upon the Kikuyu population of central Kenya, um, and it was a rebellion that its uh, activists said was a fight for land and freedom, which is something I'll come back to again. And I describe Kamafi here as an eloquent corpse because the debates and silences around his remains speak to some of the key themes of post-colonial Kenyan and African history more generally, which I do think have some resonances with others in this uh, work in this showcase today. So as I said, how Kamafi was buried and what happened to his remains were not questions uh, that greatly troubled Kenyans until the early 1990s. Kamafi's significance to post-colonial debate to that point was what his life had represented and his role in Mau Mau. From 1990 onwards, the remains became the live political uh, issue. So I'm going to talk about this. Just, but just, I won't go into too much de detail about how his remains or the ways in which people spoke about his remains became an issue after 1990. But just to say things like presidential candidates promised on the campaign trail that his body would be exhumed. Um, human rights activists made a similar, similar promises. Rallies were held in Nairobi calling for the remains to be discovered and then exhumed. Uh, a free Kamathi committee was established in 2000 to oversee this effort. And the NARC government of Mike Kabaki, the current president, promised upon taking power in 2002 that they would find Kamafi's body and rebury it in a newly designated Heroes Acre in Nairobi. So why the shift? And there's, I give four main reasons, and the fourth is the one I'm going to give most attention to in this paper, but I'm not privileging that above the others. One of the most profound influences, and I think Susie, you just <laughs> preempted what I was going to say, on this process is the rise of Christianity. And the spread of Christianity through the 20th century in Kenya is, for any political historian or political scientist, is something that, and this is more generally true of the region, something that needs to be adequately understood and theorised in a much more, um, uh, a much more systematic way than has been the case so far. From a small minority of four million Kenyans in the colonial period, so that figure about 1950, around 80% of the population are self-professed Christians today. And that change of religious practice has had profound um, impacts upon 
uh, all sorts of social practices to do with the sort of reproduction of, every, of life, birth, uh, the transition to adulthood, adulthood itself, uh, and death itself. Um, and by 1972, Ngugi Wafiongo, Kenya's most famous novelist, wrote, I cannot escape from the church, its influence is all around me. And it's a very, very good quote for trying to understand the extent to which Christianity has influenced everyday life. Now, in relation to death and burial, particularly the practice in central Kenya of non-notable figures being left in the forests uh, facing Mount Kenya for disposal by animals and so on has been completely abandoned and in its place um, been replaced by burial as we uh, in a sort of Christian practice. So obviously this sort of growth of Christianity, this um, uh, changes in beliefs about how is appropriate, and there's also I suppose a medical aspect to this as well which I'm not qualified to speak about, um, what is an appropriate manner of disposing of remains has obviously influenced attitudes towards this one specific body of Kamathi. But the trend towards burial also has a political and social function, which has been driven by the introduction of private land tenure. This is, of course, I'm talking here over the course of the 20th century. I'm not talking about it very recently. The introduction of private land tenure and a history of migration. Kenya is a country of migrant communities, but it's a country of, uh, a country of migrant communities, some of whom deny that they're migrants, and some of whom that claim to belong to the soil on which they're working. And the presence of a grave of an ancestor is as good a claim, particularly in a country where individual titles to land are meaningless, when there sometimes could be free titles to the same plot of land. The presence of the grave of an ancestor is a profoundly powerful statement about belonging to a particular place. And it's a, a way by which communities can um, assert claims to belong to places that are claimed by others. And amongst the Kikuyu community of which Kamathi is one, this is particularly important uh, in the history of migration through particularly the Rift Valley of Kenya um, and the settlement of large numbers of Kikuyu both before and after independence in 63, which is deeply contested by local populations, Kalenji and Maasai particularly, and in the 1990s and after the recent election of 2007 had very, very bloody consequences in part due to this history. So again, this sort of the social and political um, significance as well as the religious significance of graves more generally has really profoundly changed over the course of the 20th century, which can partly explain the specific interest in Kamathi. There's another element here which is something I think is worth thinking about more generally, which is historians, I should say that historians generally of Africa have not necessarily been that concerned with the post-colonial period. The post-colonial period as a matter of historical inquiry is a fairly recent development amongst Africanist historians. And one of the themes that hasn't really been grappled with yet is the ways in which the telling and the understanding of history amongst sub-Saharan Africans has changed as a result of demographic change in the post-colonial period. As I said, Kenya's population has grown from around 4 million in 1950 to nearly 40 million today. But the colonial period assumes great significance in people's understandings of present politics and also ideas of identity and ideas of citizenship and ideas of nationality. So what is occurring is a, um, a sort of stable level of significance attached to the colonial period, but a very declining, uh, an obviously declining number, both in real terms and proportionally, of people that actually lived through that colonial past. And therefore, the actual tangible material remains of colonialism, the artefacts of colonialism, the bodies of colonial violence, um, of the victims of colonial violence and so on, are beginning to assume a much greater significance within popular understandings of history. And this can be seen in all sorts of ways. The, the rise of museums, for example, local cultural museums exhibiting 
the local ethnic community's historical artifacts is something that's become very, very pronounced across much of Kenya um, in recent years. Now, the, f the final, f the, the, the point I want to give greatest attention to is what Kamathi's remains tell us about a shift in the substance of political debate, the, the ways in which political culture has changed. And to borrow the language of Nancy Fraser uh, and her work, particularly on sort of uh, a feminist uh, critique of social justice and also the, the position of feminists within society more generally, she talks about in the post-war, the post post Second World War world of a shift from the politics of redistribution to the politics of recognition. And what she means by this is that the substance of political debate uh, globally and the de debates around social justice specifically have changed from ones being where particular issues, particular movements are um, seen as uh, representative of much broader argument for redistribution. There's been a shift towards recognition simply of that particular group, that particular set of grievances, that particular set of um, that particular agenda of that one community, individual, um, section of society, whatever. And it's that that I, sort of, I think Kamafi's remains and the interest in them is most easily understood within this framework. Kenya, after independence, between, in the 60s and 70s, politics was dominated by debates about redistribution of resources and specifically about land. What was to be done with land vacated by departing European settlers how should it be redistributed? Should it be distributed uh, by grants to the neediest sections of society? Should it be sold to those that were able to afford it? And Kenyatta, the first president, uh, supported by many of his ministers, including the present president, argued that land should be sold. And Kenya's post-colonial uh, political economy was one based upon private land tenure and capitalist development, uh, sort of broadly speaking. By contrast, the opposition, led by the current Prime Minister's father, uh, argued that land should be redistributed to the most needy and to, the, um, to those that had earned the right to the land. And particularly important in this debate were the Mau Mau veterans, who were represented as typical of this sort of broader uh, group of dispossessed, marginalised, poor, landless peasants who demanded land within the post-colonial as part of independence. And Mau Mau veterans were particularly important to this because they were the scenes, ones that were seen as sacrificing the most for independence. So Kamafi's, the importance of Kamafi to this debate was he was representative of Mau Mau's strength. Mau Mau had won. Even if Kamafi had been killed in the process, Mau Mau had brought independence to Kenya and therefore um, uh, um, the, the, the rewards should be passed on to both uh, the individual veterans themselves, but also the, the sections of community they represented, the landless, the poor, and so on. So in this debate, Kamafi's remains were completely unimportant. What had happened to him in his death was completely irrelevant to how he was perceived in the general public. And he was, it wasn't that he'd been forgotten, he was still seen as a tremendously important figure, but he was seen as representative of these claims. He was a, the sort of spectre at the banquet, if you like, the, um, to remind Kenyatta and his fellow ministers of what should have happened. Um, after independence. Kenyatta, in order to counter this move, this call for redistribution, um, if we want to look around and start pointing fingers in the, Kenyan in the Kenyan past about who is responsible particularly for the growth of the particular brand of ethnic uh, politics that's present in Kenya, Kenyatta is that man. He introduced ethnicity into national political debate in a particularly profound way in the 1960s as a way of trying to marginalise this call for redistribution. He labelled 
the leader of the opposition, Aginga Odinga, as the leader of an ethnic Luo opposition party in an effort to try and discredit him. At the same time, by introducing that element of ethnicity, Kenyatta had to shore up his own support base amongst his own Kikuyu, um, and particularly the Kikuyu elites. And so much of the 1970s was spent of, of distributing the fruits of independence to this group of Kikuyu elites through lands and jobs and so on. Kenyatta's successor after his death in 78 continued this process, but with one crucial difference, in that he was Kalenjin rather than Kikuyu and set about dismantling Kenyatta's sort of Kikuyu state with a Kalenjin state. Now, as Kenya shifted from one-party to multi-party politics in 1991 and the first elections of the multi-party era in 1992, Kikuyu were critical to the opposition movement that emerged and so found themselves targeted by state-sanctioned violence around the 1992-1997 elections. And this created a discourse of grievance, of bloodshed, of victimhood amongst Kikuyu. And they were now, competed, they were now um, participating in a very different political culture from their um, fathers and mothers in the 1960s. Um, from debates about redistribution of wealth, political debate had become one about ethnic claim-making. The politics of recognition that had emerged was about the efforts of communities to gain recognition for past historical grievances and current complaints without any broader agenda for redistribution or social change. And Kamafi's remains, therefore, became important. They were material artefacts of a history of Kikuyu victimhood, of quite understandably so, of grievance, um, and about a try of advancing claims for recognition. So... The, uh, the shift in Mau Mau's status and Kamafi's status took place from being one of victors to victims. And this was reflected in a shift in the basic substance, as I said, of Kikuyu political culture, which stressed, first of all, the violence of the British anti-Mau Mau campaign, again, for very understandable reasons. And this was then re represented as a precursor of violence visited upon Kikuyu communities in, by Moy in, 1990, in the 1990s and now more recently in 2007. The remains of the executed Mau Mau leader, Kamathi, was the perfect embodiment of this shift. The other purpose that the remains had was, or was driven by the demands of multi-party democracy occurring at the same time as neoliberal market reform. The latter process of economic change, and particularly the opening up of the deregulation of the agricultural market, of agriculture in central Kenya, had the effect of profound social conflict within Kikuyu society. Uh, and Mungiki, the uh, group that's emerged as a sort of vigilante, uh, part mafia, part Kikuyu religious revival <coughs> movement, um, part urban um, criminal gang, has the ultimate manifestation of this. And by celebrating, as Kabaki and other Kikuyu elite leaders have done in the past few years, individuals like Kamafi making promises about exhuming remains has had the effect of appealing to sort of Kikuyu unity as a way of trying to overcome this social conflict. And it's... Um, the success of that has been um, dis uh, highly disputable. So, just as a sort of by way of conclusion, I just want to make just re uh, restate some of the key points. The reasons for the awakening of interest in Kamafi's remains, I argue, and in much more detail than I've had the chance to do here, um, partly in um, the, the interests highlight a number of critical themes, I think, for historians interested in post colonial Kenya and sub Saharan Africa more generally. One is the increased salience of organised religion, be it Christianity or Islam. The second sort of more general um, relevance is the way that which cultural and political forms have been shaped by histories of migration, 
be it from rural to urban areas, rural to rural migration within country, regional across borders, and now, most importantly, globally as well. Now, it also illustrates the way in which the change in substance of political debate has taken place. This, the classification of the post-colonial era, era doesn't seem to me to make much analytical sense. And what we can see across that period, though, is the slow death of the politics of recognition. So for Kenya particularly, we can see how ethnicity has been mobilised um, by elites as a way of silencing demands for redistribution. I'm not making any original argument there. But what this has produced, to go back to specifically to Kenya, is the most profound contradiction of contemporary Kenya. On one hand, any uh, vaguely intelligent uh, observer of Kenya today can easily see that it's a society absolutely ridden with social conflict upon lines of age, gender, class, region, ethnicity, whatever you want to describe it. On the other hand, however, formal political debate has almost no concern whatsoever with these social divisions. And until it does, then the violence that followed the 2007 elections will likely return. Kenya will probably have many more eloquent corpses in the future. And I'll leave it there. Thank you very much.